We're going to be in Lamentations chapter 1. Lamentations chapter 1. Of course, we know uh, most of the time this is interpreted. Uh, and matter of fact, as I kind of looked, I went and seen a few commentaries just to kind of see what other men's thoughts was on some of this stuff here. Um, as I say often, I think we need to find Christ in everything. Uh, even Christ said that all of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, and all of the Old Testament was all written about Him. Uh, everything in the Scriptures to point to Christ, right? And while there's other things that's talked about within the Scripture, I think that a lot of these things are all pointing and, and, and looking at Christ. And most of the commentary people that I read on on these passages here all pointed towards that uh, this is specifically speaking about the church. And uh, I can definitely see um, that that can be applied. Some of the things that we read here in Lamentations can definitely be applied to the church. Um, however, I want to maybe present a little different angle on this. Uh, because the church is basically the body and Christ is the head. We are in Christ Jesus, therefore that which Christ experiences, the whole body will experience. He's our substitute for one. Um, but we see because we are in Christ, uh, we also uh, experience the things that Christ experienced. Um, whenever Christ obeyed on our behalf, we obeyed. So whenever the head obeyed, the whole body obeyed in him. Whenever Christ died, the whole body died in him. Whenever Christ was resurrected, the whole body was resurrected because we were in him, right? Jesus also mentioned on several occasions that whenever, uh, that because he was afflicted, because he was scorned, because he was persecuted, that we also, his body would receive ridicule and scorn, scoffing, uh, persecution. So we see that because we are in Christ, and of course we look on the other thing, because we are in Christ at the head, Jesus uh, is considered the Israel of God, but yet we're considered the Israel of God, right? Why? Because we are in Him. Uh, Jesus is considered the Son of God, but yet we are sons of God. Why? Because we are in Him. We are His seed. So therefore, we are sons of God. Uh, Jesus was the one who received the inheritance, but yet we are, what does the Bible say? We are co-heirs with Jesus. We are co-inheritors of all the blessings that was bestowed upon Christ. They're also bestowed upon us. So all the blessings... Uh, are yea and amen in Christ, and we receive those blessings because we are in Him, that eternal vital union. And so therefore, we see that there is this, uh, there is this uh, <coughs> tangible relationship between Christ as our head and us. There is this uh, true uh, uh, 
vision of a whole body, one man being fitly put together in all of his parts and all of his members known within him, all of this, all of this together is Christ Jesus and his people. And so we see this inseparable union. So therefore, whenever we come to Lamentations, while physically and timely, this was speaking of Jerusalem and, and the Israelites back in those days, right? Uh, the things that were to happen to them. The captivity, the persecution, uh, the enemies that would come against them. All the things that we've seen that happened to Israel during those, during those times. But yet we also see this as a picture uh, of the church in a spiritual way. We see it as a picture of the church. But brother, I would press even a little bit further and say this is speaking of Christ Jesus, and therefore since it's speaking of Christ Jesus, that also includes us. It speaks of Jerusalem in these passages. But Jesus himself is the true Jerusalem. And if, as we have looked in the times past, we've seen that the imagery or the, or the symbology that we see throughout Scripture that Jerusalem, the holy city, is uh, often referred to as uh, Zion, is often referred to uh, as that holy city. Uh, and as we look through Scripture, we see that that is always usually the reference of that temple or that building, that place where God resides, and the lively stones that make up this city that makes up this building, that makes up this tabernacle, the walls around the sea, all these things are imagery that are pointing to the people of God. And of course Christ being the head of that uh, and his people in him. So these are metaphors that Jesus used, that the apostles used. He used a, he used a city, he used a body, he used a tabernacle or a temple uh, and everything. But he was speaking of uh, him and his people together in him making up this thing. So whenever we look back in, into the Old Testament and we begin to read some of these things, we can begin to see if we're looking uh, through spiritual eyes as the Spirit gives us understanding of these things, we begin to see how this uh, speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in particular and then us in him also. But let's start reading in verse 12. And I want to read down to verse 13. Um, it says, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Now, I've just asked the question, can we actually say that about anybody else except the Lord Jesus, to be honest? Has anybody ever had a sorrow like unto his sorrow? I don't think there ever has been. I mean, we truly have a lot of sorrow that we face in this lifetime. But has anybody faced the sorrow, especially if you go to the New Testament and you read that night in Gethsemane where Jesus went before the Father in prayer and the agony and the, and the, and the heart that was spilled out there before God. And whenever he, the Bible says that he, uh, that he prayed and whenever he did, I mean, he, he sweat like droplets of blood, you know, that he was so, uh, this prayer before God was so intense knowing, uh, that, uh, the, uh, of what he was about to experience, not only the physical nature of what he was about to experience with all the beatings and the floggings and the eventual crucifixion and things like that, but the very fact that his father would forsake him 
and that God would turn and would put all the weight and, and, and wrath of God upon him for the sins of his people. I mean, this was something that, that overflowed in the, the grief of the heart of our Lord. And so his sorrow was like no sorrow that we've ever, ever had. You know, whenever a family member dies, we feel great sorrow. But that sorrow subsides after a little time. Uh, and, and it's never to the degree like Christ, who is God, who has never been separated uh, at all, uh, felt whenever he was forsaken of God. And whenever he became sin upon the cross, not literally a sinner, but whenever he took, he became sin for us, he became our substitute, he took on all of our sin, and therefore all the wrath of God fell upon him. What great sorrow that was. That's why the Bible calls him Man of Sorrow. We sing the song, Man of Sorrows, what a name. Um, he truly is a man of sorrows. Um, and so whenever I look at this verse, I see, I can't, I can't help but see the Lord. Who are, you know, what to say? Is it nothing to you, ye all ye that pass by? We speak, we remember on the crucifixion, on uh, at the crucifixion on the cross, the Bible talks about those who would pass by and rail at him, pass by and mock him, spit on him, and you know, uh, make fun of him, and all that kind of stuff. It says, "There's nothing to you, all ye that pass by." And what a question that is! And I, and I hope I don't get too scattered here, but just it's so profound the question that here we see a picture. If we're looking at Christ in view here. We see a picture of God Himself on the cross dying for sinners. The holy God, the one who is perfect, who is righteous, who has never sinned, the one who has created all things. The Bible says that Christ Jesus is the creator of all things, that by Him all things were made. And for Him all things was made. Not only was He the creator of all things, but everything that He created was created for Him and for His purpose. But yet here he is, humbled himself as a servant, took on flesh, the God who is invisible, and the Bible says that the heaven of heavens can't contain, took on flesh and confined all of the Godhead in one man's body, and then subjected himself. The Bible says that he did this willingly. I have a few verses that we're going to look at here, but... The Bible says that he subjected himself willingly to all the accusations, to all the mocking, to all the beating, to all the blasphemy, to all the, all the pain that he endured, and then submitted himself willingly to the wrath of God on our behalf. And he says here, is it nothing to you? Can you imagine that? Walking in front of Christ in this situation and seeing him and what all he was doing and realizing all that was transpiring in this work. And it says, is it nothing to you? What's going on here? Is it nothing to you that uh, all ye that pass by, behold and see is there, if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of fierce anger. Listen, none of us has experienced the fierce anger of God fully. And thankfully, for the child of grace, we never will. As we just sung in that hymn before we uh, began here, uh, we're never going to... God has kept us secure. God has delivered us 
from any wrath. He has not appointed us under wrath. And so what a blessing that is that we will never, ever, ever experience the affliction of God's fierce anger that yet Christ has on our behalf. He says, From above hath he sent fire into my bones, and it prevaileth against them. He hath spread a net for my feet. He hath turned me back. He hath made me desolate and faint all the day. Now look at verse 14. It says, The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come upon my neck. He hath made my strength to fall. The Lord hath delivered me into their hands, for whom I am not able to rise up. So we look at this picture of Christ on the cross and the affliction of God upon His soul, the affliction of God upon the wrath of sin, or the wrath of God upon the sin uh, that Christ was bearing uh, for His people. And all the enemies of God and all the ones who came against Him that brought forth this, this crucifixion and the punishment that was coming from God Himself. And we look at this like someone who is helpless. We see, and, and again, this is where my mind goes to, this is God. At any time, He could have just, he, he didn't even have to say a word. He could have just went and sniffed his nose, and everything would have obliterated into nothing. You know, we've all watched the Avengers movie where Thanos snapped his finger and everybody started to dissolve in a way. God doesn't even have to do that, you know. He just can think. He can speak a syllable, and everything becomes nothing again. And here he is subjecting himself, allowing so to speak, if you'll allow me that word, allowing his very creation to torture him, to put him on a cross. But even more of that, he went to that cross, despising the shame, but went there with joy in his heart to do so. Now, we see this as of a man afflicted. We see this as one caught in a snare. That's what it means whenever it says they cast a net for my feet. Someone who's been caught in a snare, taken, brought back and been afflicted. Okay? And he says <clears throat> that he has been delivered to these people and that he is not able to rise up. Now that doesn't mean that he doesn't have the power to overcome that. We know that the Bible says that he is very capable that if he would have called, called any kind of angels to come, he could have called angels. We, there's that song, he could have called 10,000 angels. You know, we, he could have called angels to come and deliver him. He could have stopped in the middle of all that and said, this is it, I'm not, not going to do this. Now we say that, God's purposed that, so therefore it's never going to happen, but... God, in His determination, could have chose not to do any of that stuff. Matter of fact, God could have, in His determination, in the middle of all that, could have decided to show His full force wrath, and at that point, destroyed everything. But He didn't. And so the question is asking, here we have Christ doing all this, but for what purpose? 
But for what purpose? Why has Christ come to do this? Why has Christ come to do this? And and the question at the beginning of, of, of it all that continues to, to intrigue me is, what is it? Why do you pass by and look? And this is nothing to you. Who in the world is found in that question? Who is he talking about that would dare or even just out of pure sympathy pass by and think nothing about what's going on here? Are there anybody that's like that today? I mean, we know that what happened on the cross is the most paramount thing in all of history. Backward history and forward history. That's the paramount thing that God has done in this creation and time. Now there's going to be an exaltation after time is over with that that is ultimately going to be the paramount thing. But I'm talking about in our time on earth here before the consummation of all things. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. The angels themselves, they all look to this as something that is of extreme importance. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 1. Look with me, if you would, down to verses 11 and 12. I'll start reading verse 10, kind of give this little context. It says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now he's talking about the Old Testament prophets. Uh, and, and preachers that we're talking about who have been given by the Spirit of Christ have been taught the Gospel. Now, they weren't taught it in its fullness and its clarity like we have it today, but they were taught the Gospel in the Old Testament. We know that to be a fact. This isn't the only place in Scripture that teaches that. But yet we see that they were uh, testifying to them the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. If you don't believe me, just go read Psalms 22. It's a very clear and vivid picture of Christ and what was going to happen. But it says in verse 12, it says, Unto whom it was revealed that not uh, unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So even the very angels of God are interested in and take notice of the work of Christ and His sufferings. They desire to look into what is this thing that this God that we surround His throne crying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory, has condescended into, into flesh, and not only has He done that, which is already just an unbelievable thing, that God has taken on flesh, but yet he subjected himself to all of this that's going on in, it, in what we term his sufferings. 
The angels are intent on that. They're not just passing by and thinking nothing of it. They are intently looking in and desiring to know about these things. Uh, we know that all the people of God, uh, all of His preachers, uh, this is an important thing to them. Turn with me if you would to Isaiah. The angels think it's an important thing. They are looking into it. Preachers, they're called, raised up by God to proclaim these things. In Isaiah chapter 6, this is the passage I was making reference to just a second ago. Isaiah chapter 6, look at verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, we know that to be Jesus Christ, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings, and twain uh, he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved, and the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hands, which he had taken from the tongs off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. So we see here that the heart of the preacher is always to go and to proclaim what he has seen, what he has heard, what he knows of this King, this Lord of Lords, this Holy One, and specifically as it pertains to uh, his sufferings. Uh, look in Galatians chapter 6. Look with me, if you would, down at verse 14. It says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. So Paul here, as he ends this letter to the Galatians, he said, God forbid that I should glory in anything except Christ and Him crucified. What is the center point of, of the, not only the vision but also the center point of all of what Paul preached about. Well, he preached about a lot of things, but it all had to do and pertain to Christ and Him crucified. You know, we have, we have people that preach on a lot of different things, and like I said, we was talking about this before we came on uh, live and everything. You know, there's a lot of things that the Scripture teaches which is all true and is all important and is just as much relevant for anything as, as, as everything else in the Scriptures. But the whole of Scripture is about the Gospel. It's particularly about the work of Christ on behalf of His people in saving a people for Himself. That is the, that is the paramount thing of the Word of God is the vision, the, the view, the if you want to call it the spectacle of Christ taking on flesh for His people 
and being put to death and experiencing the wrath of God and, and dying on their behalf. And so that is what should fill and flood our preaching. And it was. We don't just pass by and think nothing of it and move on and talk about other things. And I know churches and been in churches that all they do is they talk, there's churches that talk, and you can watch, turn on TV, and I think people know what I'm talking about. I don't think I need to exasperate this much, but people know what I'm talking about. You turn on the TV or the radio, and what do you hear most of the time people talking about? Most of the time you're talk, hearing men talk about health and wealth, the, the prosperity preachers. You know, with your faith, you can make yourself where you're never sick, and you'll never die, and you'll never be poor again. You know? That if you just have enough faith, you can do all this stuff. Yet one by one, all their faith teachers are dropping off, getting sick, getting cancer, getting all this kind of stuff. Yet, you know, here they are, you know, telling you that if you'll just give me $1,000, it's going to cure you. Well, why don't they give $1,000 to the other evangelist that's saying that on the other channel and get them well? What I mean, what? Anyway, I, I digress. So... We hear out there all these things. People talk about that. They talk about prophecy. There's some of those preachers on there, and I, I remember back when I was an Armenian that would watch stuff on TV, and even at that time, and I didn't believe in health and wealth and prosperity preachers and prophecy, but I would listen to this prophecy preachers, and I would listen to them and all their elaborate things and newspaper theology and all this kind of stuff, and I just listened to this intricate web of stuff, and it was just like, man... And that's all they talked about. Uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, him and his wife that used to bat Jack Van Impey. Their whole entire program wasn't preaching the gospel. It was all about the end times. It was all about prophecy. You know? And they deal with just prophecy, 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 prophecy. And there's healers, 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 healers. Wealth, 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 wealth. But yet you come into the... Uh, into the sovereign grace circles, and sometimes all you hear is predestination, predestination, predestination. I think that's very important, and I preach about predestination quite a bit here, but predestination a lot of times goes hand in hand with the gospel because the predestination of God, while I believe He has predestined all events, the predestination of God is the predestination of a people to be saved, a predestination of a work of salvation. <coughs> he has predestinated us to the adoption of sons. He has predestinated us to be saved. And so, uh, predestination, election, the gospel all go hand in hand. That's why you can't preach the gospel if you're not preaching predestination and election. People say, well, can you not just, you know, I was once asked that, you know, well, can you preach all these things without having to preach election and predestination? No, you can't. You cannot preach the gospel without preaching predestination and election. There is no gospel without that. Can, can I preach Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection? Absolutely. I can preach that all the day long. But if you don't preach what that has accomplished, and why it has accomplished that, predestination and election is cut out of the Bible. But it's in there. So we have to preach that. That is part of why the death, burial, and resurrection. That's why Paul whenever he wrote about preaching in the gospel, how that Christ uh, died 
according to the Scriptures, was buried, and was raised according to the Scriptures. And everybody goes, there you go, there's the Gospel. All you have to believe and all you have to teach and preach to preach the Gospel is that Christ died, that He was buried, and that He was rose again. If you believe that He died, was buried, and was raised again, then you are saved and then you are believing the Orthodox Gospel and everything like that. But what did Paul say? How He died according to the Scriptures. How He was raised according to the Scriptures. Why did Paul add that little tidbit in there? Because there was a purpose for which Christ died. There was a purpose for why Christ was resurrected from the dead. See, Christ could have died for His people. They laid that body in the grave, and that glorified man, that glorified Christ, could have went right back to the Father and just went back to the throne and go back to his normal business of being God. But why was it that he raised him up? I mean, it was to die for them, right? He had to die for them. It was by the shedding of blood that there was remission of sin. It is by his blood that we are justified. But why was there a raising up? Why did the raising up part have to take place. Why is that part of the gospel? Why is that so important as part of the gospel? Well, first is and foremost is it's the validity of what Christ died, uh, did in his dying. If you don't have the resurrection, then we see that Christ continually dies. He's continually dead. He ceases to exist. And therefore, he no longer has the right to live. But God said He was satisfied with everything that Christ did. Therefore, there has no need for continual death. And so He raised up Christ. It also reveals that He is the, the Christ. It reveals that He has power over death and hell because the Bible says that He raised Himself up. Now I know the Bible also says that the Father raised Him up and that He was raised up by the Spirit of God. So you have the Father... You have the Spirit, and you have the Word of God raising Himself up. That shows me that God is a unity of one in Christ Jesus. That all the Godhead is considered doing the, the work. The whole Godhead. Why? Because God is one. I don't mean to go on and on about that, but we make too much out of separation of the Godhead than we do of the oneness of the Godhead. We try to separate God more than what the Bible separates, and, and instead of looking at him in a more unified way, as the Bible portrays him. He is one God, and he works in that capacity as Father, Word, and Holy Spirit in that Godhead, and that Godhead is in Christ Jesus. So whenever it talks about all these works of everything, that's God doing that work. Anyway, so we see God raising him up, So the, but it's according to the Scripture. See, if we don't have the death, the burial, the resurrection according to the Scriptures, then we don't have the Gospel. If all it is is just death, burial, and resurrection, Lazarus had that. Lazarus had a death, he had a burial, and he had a resurrection. But Lazarus can't save nothing. Lazarus couldn't even save himself because Lazarus died again. So there was something different about death burial, and resurrection. The death had a purpose. And it had a specific people 
who it was intended for, because there was an effect that was to come from the death. And then there was a burial that took place because Christ said that if you destroy this body in three days, I will raise it again. And that as Noah was three, or excuse me, as Jonah was three days in the belly of the well, so should the Son of Man be three days in the heart of the earth or in the belly of the earth. He was three days buried, and then on the that morning he was resurrected according to the scripture. The Bible says that he was not to see death and to stay in death, and that there was going to be something that was going to take place out of this. The Bible says that we are justified in His resurrection. What, how are we justified in His resurrection? Well, that God raising Him from the grave is the justification or is the sign or is the symbol that God has accepted what God in Christ has done on our behalf. He res resurrected Him and therefore, Christ being resurrected, we were resurrected. We were resurrected to life in Christ Jesus. He was the first fruits, and then we are the ones to follow after Him. If He has been resurrected, we also are going to be resurrected. Our hope is in the resurrection. So therefore, His resurrection was also effectual in the fact that because Christ was resurrected, that is also a sign and a justification and a hope for all those who are in Him. That if the head is resurrected, the whole body is going to be resurrected with the head. So the according to the Scriptures is the preaching of everything else that entails the death, burial, and resurrection. That's why Paul put that in there, according to the Scriptures. Therefore, you can't preach the Gospel unless you preach the purpose and the reason and the effectualness of why Christ died, why Christ was buried, and why Christ was resurrected. What happened? Was that just to make a... Was that to put a plan in motion? Was that to make salvation uh, 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 available? To make salvation a possibility? But it's up to you to believe, receive, repent, turn, whatever... Is salvation just made possible by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? Or is, as we keep saying, is it an efficacious thing? That was one of the things we were talking about. There is a reason why Christ is said to have died for all men, and there is a tie back to the atonement. We were talking about this, we had a conversation with a gentleman um, this week, and that was one of the things how is Christ the Savior of all men? Does that mean in every man head for head? And we were discussing with this man about how, let's talk about all kinds of men. Jew, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And that uh, we know for fact, that the Bible clearly says there are some that God has condemned, uh, 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 ordained to condemnation. That some that God has made a, uh, uh, a vessel of dishonor some that he has hidden the gospel from so that they will not be converted. So we know for a fact that the Bible teaches that not God didn't intend for everybody to be saved. So therefore, the all men cannot mean all men head for head because of the clear statements of Scripture that God has ordained some not to 
be saved. But the all men is included of Jew and Gentile, rich, poor, kings, paupers, all kinds of men. But the other reason that it can't mean all men is because the very work of Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection is the effectual nature of it. That it actually secured a legal work and a legal standing before God. That's why it can't mean all men, because if there's anybody in hell, then that means that God is an unjust God. That means that Christ did not fulfill the covenant, and he did lose some that the Father had given him, and that his, that his atonement was not effectual. The atonement, the word atonement means to make one. He made one between God and the sinner. He brought them together and made atonement, appeasement. That word means appeasement. He appeased the wrath of God. He turned away God's wrath. So if you are in the atonement of Jesus Christ, then you have been shielded away from God's wrath. You have been removed from God's wrath. You have been delivered from wrath. So if anybody has been died for by Christ, then they have been atoned for. And if they've been atoned for, that means there is no more wrath. That's why we say that Christ's work is effectual. That Christ's work had an actual uh, securing of things other than just a home in heaven at the end of the day. We just sung about being at home in a mansion whenever we get get done with this lifetime and everything. That's a wonderful thing. But listen, there's more to it than that. It is the fact that a sinner is justified and imputed righteousness. Therefore, a holy God only sees righteousness, but He's looking at the sinner. He's looking at a man guilty. He's looking at a man who is worthy of death, worthy of hell, worthy of, of damnation. But yet He doesn't exert that upon them because... All he sees is our righteousness, which is in our head. He sees our head. So, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, this that Christ was experiencing on the cross, where all this affliction, all this turmoil, all this suffering, all this stuff that he was seeing, and he's saying to those people, there is this nothing to you, you who pass by. I mean, truly, you would think that they wouldn't just pass by, that they would, as some, as some of the apostles, or one of the apostles and some of the women, um, which is very telling to me in, in some regards, that all those men fled away except for John. Yet all those women, they didn't have no problem going down there and staying with them, you know. Uh, all the men took, took tail and ran. <clears throat> But John, the one whom Jesus loved, he was there. Uh, but anyway, they stood there until it was over. Watched it all. Took it all in and seen what all had taken place. Experienced everything that Christ had uh, done on their behalf. And so I'm thinking to myself, that question 
that is asked, who, what is it? How can you just pass by and it become nothing to you? And I think over and over and over again to myself, the preachers that are out there, that to them, that the gospel is just something to pass by. Death, burial, resurrection, and then we have to do something. It's all about conditions. We move from the act to now it's yours. And the paramount of preaching today is what you do, whether it's to get it or whether it's to keep it. You just pass by what's happening, and that's nothing to you. But what's paramount is what you now have to do. What Christ has done is nothing, but what you have to do is paramount. We talked a few weeks ago how everything is turned on its head, that everything centers on free will in most of the preaching today. That is what's paramount. Everything comes back to, and listen, I would say that even among the sovereign grace, a lot of sovereign grace preaching. There are still a lot of people who speak sovereign grace out of one side of their mouth, but are still preaching free will out of the other sides of their mouth. They say, yes, we believe predestination, we believe election, but over here, oh, we have man's responsibility, man's duty, and there is a condition. If you don't repent, if you don't believe, if you don't persevere, then all those things, that all that's gone. That man can't be justified until he believes. So God is sitting there waiting, waiting for the person to believe upon Him. Christ has done all that He could do. Christ has paid all that He could pay. The blood has been shed. The, the, the life has been spent and resurrected and gone back to heaven. and Everything has been done on His end, but yet you can't be justified until you come to terms with that and believe upon Him, trust in Him. Oh, you can't be uh, born again, or you can't you can't be born again. You can't be justified until you repent of all your sins. If that's the case, then I'll never be saved because I can't repent of all my sins. I, I continue to come back to them. I continue in sin. Sin is a transgression of the law. If you've offended in one, you've offended in them all. To try to keep the law of God is to sin. And therefore, there is no repentance. There is no true repentance of sin, but there is a repentance of theology. There is a repentance of doctrine. There is a repentance of, of justification. There is a repentance of righteousness. There is a repenting of wrong thinking about how all of that is procured for us. I don't have to do all this. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. Why? Because... The one who died was buried and resurrected. Every bit of that did that for us. That's why all the secondary preaching things come into play about death, burial, and resurrection. That is why whenever we look at this and we see that what is it to you that is going on here? Is it nothing to you? These preachers that just pass by the effectual work of Christ and what it did and lays the conditions back upon men are as if the people at the very cross that just walked by, shouted their things, kept on going. But as we see here, to the preacher of God, this is the paramount thing. 
I pray that the Lord would continue to keep me in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you as the ones who are coming to worship and to listen, that that is the food that you're hungry for and not the food of all the peripheral, of all the other things, of all the duties, of all the uh, busyness of religion. But you want to hear, you know, I, I grew up and I heard it from a lot of people and I used to feel it my same way. Man, I want to hear, you know, tell me what I need to do. You know, I want to hear, I want to hear, uh, I want to hear sermons on practical living. You know, I, yeah, doctrine's important, but you can only have so much doctrinal preaching, you know. Well, doctrinal preaching is basically preaching, teaching. That's what the word doctrine means. It's just teaching. Teaching on a variety of subjects or whatever. But what people are saying when they say that is we want to just tell us how it is. Just tell us how we ought to live. Tell us what we ought to do. Get down to the brass tacks. What is this all about? What do I need to do to make sure that God's happy with me still? What do I need to do to make sure that I'm accepted with God and that God is continuing to be happy with me? And that I'm not displeasing Him? And that I might be an, a help to others? I see these guys on Facebook a lot of times, and I don't know, I might have a wrong thought about this, I don't mean to get off too far on this, but somehow this just kind of grates me the wrong direction. Plastering up for everybody, for a general thing, how may I pray for you today? Who are you, the Pope? You my priest? Last, I mean, I understand that we ought to pray for one another. I'm not, I'm not negating that or, or running that down at all. But who am I to go before everybody else and say, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will pray for you. I'll make my request known unto God on your behalf. Now, if the Lord puts it upon my heart as He did with the Apostle Paul, hey, I, I, I continually remember Go before the Lord on your behalf. You know, he's saying, I am praying for you, but I've never seen anywhere in the Scripture where Paul says, hey, you have anything you want me to pray for you about? I don't even know how I got off on that. But the fact remains is that this is something that is on the preacher's heart. We see the preacher is continually desiring this. And I pray that the Lord continues me in that as well, that I don't get off on side issues. Look if you would at Galatians or one Corinthians two two. I've gotten way off of the thought process that I had for this morning, but bear with me and I pray that I am following what the Spirit wants. We definitely know it's the will of God, or it wouldn't be happening. One Corinthians chapter two and verse two, Paul said, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we see again that's the determination and the main content that the cross of Jesus Christ and his sufferings is not something that is just something to pass by. It was it was the main focus of the apostles. But we see that the child of grace's uh, uh, thoughts are the same way, not just the preachers. Um, in Galatians 2, I guess we probably should have read that while we were back there again. But in Galatians chapter 2, <clears throat> In verse 20, it says, <clears throat> For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith 
of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, the heart of, of Paul was this union with Christ and him crucified. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We find in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle John writes this, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So the love of God, we see that that is the love of God. To the child of grace, the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the sufferings of Christ, the things of what Christ did on our behalf, His substitutionary work, those are the signs of the love of God. If you want to preach the love of God, don't preach inclusiveness of everybody and death of Christ for everybody. Preach the love of God in the fact that He had a Son that He sent to die and that there was an effectual work that was actually completed. The Bible says, You shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. He said that all that the Father gave me shall come to me, and I will no wise cast out. He said that I will not lose any that you have given me. I have not lost any. So we see the determination of Christ in completing the work, and in completing the work, there was an inheritance given Him. And that inheritance is all that the covenant promised. So there is a fulfillment of this covenant because of the work of Jesus Christ. That is why everyone for whom Christ died will be saved, not one exempted. Therefore, if any be in hell, it was because they were not in the covenant. They were not part of the ones for whom Christ died. Otherwise, they would have been saved. That's why that's important. That's why we don't take the cavalier, is it nothing to you, you who pass by? It is something to us. Why? Because it is everything to us. The work of Christ on the cross and His sufferings is not just a man who suffered because the Jews didn't like Him, because He spoke too much truth and people don't like the truth, so you've got to kill Him. All that's true, but that ain't, that ain't the main point. The main point is this man subjected himself, who was the God of all, subjected himself because of what? We see here, love. Because of God's love. He subjected, uh, subjected himself to this. A dying love. In Revelation chapter 5, Look at Revelation chapter 5. Look with me if you would at verse 9. <coughs> it said, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. And thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. That's where the all men comes in, right there. You want to know when the Bible says that he died for the world and that he died for all men, or He was the Savior of all men. That's the context that we're talking about. That He has redeemed a people out of. 
Not all of, but out of. Every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Therefore, that's why he can say that he is the Savior of the world. Not just for the Jews, but for Jews and Gentiles. And not just for Gentiles in a broad sense, but Gentiles specifically out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Therefore, all the world is represented in the elect of God. Therefore, when Christ died, He died for those out of every... And notice the, the term. Why is, he being, why is He being praised here, brethren? Thou art worthy, for thou wast slain and hast, past tense, redeemed us to God. What was the outcome of His being slain and redemption? Redeeming us to God out of every kindred, tongue, people, nation. Effectual. Whenever I say the word effectual, efficacious, that's it. That's it. The effect is that we have been redeemed. We have been redeemed out of We've been justified. We've been sanctified. We've been glorified. That's the effect of the cross. So it is something. Not just something to pass by. Not just something to, to add to your you know, daily devotion and, and go on about everything. No, it's the center of everything. It's the center of our preaching. It's the center of our worship. It's the center of our daily life. Listen, we just read about it. Paul said that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who died for me. It was the work of Christ's death on our behalf that becomes effectual not only in what we receive in a legal way, but what we receive in an experiential way. I experience the life and the work of Christ in me because of the effectualness of His death, burial, and resurrection. In John chapter 10, I'll end with this. In John chapter 10. Look with me if you would. Down at verse 14. <coughs> it says, I am the good shepherd. Now that's not Mike speaking, that's Jesus speaking. <laughs> I'm not a good shepherd. I'm a shepherd at all. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known of mine. I know them. And guess what? They know Him. Why do they know Him? Why do they know Him? Well, number one, because He is their shepherd. But they also know Him because the Bible says that they all shall know God because they are all taught of God. They weren't taught by the underling, the hireling. They weren't taught by the um, assistant shepherd, the under-shepherd, as sometimes they call us preachers. Under The under-shepherd. No, they were taught by the good shepherd. They were taught by God. You will know more your neighbor say, Here is God, for they shall all know Him. 
You have no need that any man should teach you. Why? Because the anointing that has been given to you from above and resides in you and abides on you, it shall teach you. The Holy Spirit that I will give you, it will lead you into all truth and it will teach you all things. They shall all be taught of God. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There it is. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Now what's he talking about? Well, here he is speaking to predominantly a Jewish crowd. Who this Jewish crowd had a Jewish notion that salvation was only a Jewish salvation. And that these Jews who had the Jewish notion of a Jewish-only salvation was completely bewildered whenever a Jew came and taught them that salvation was for others and not just them. They was astounded at that. Even though it was clear in the Old Testament that this was to happen, they were astonished. What are you talking about? Wait a minute. You mean Gentiles are going to be included in this? And Jesus here, even before His death, is very clear to them. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And He says, them also I must bring. See, it is, it is apparent, uh, apparent that Jesus has a command to not only save the Jew, but to also save and bring the Gentile. That there are sheep of the Jews, but there are also sheep of the Gentiles. And as we've seen in Revelation, out of, not all of Israel, and not all of Gentile, but out of Jew and Gentile, he said, I have sheep in both places. They are sheep. Already sheep. And you notice here, he said, I have sheep that are not of this, them I must bring. It's a, it's a thing that is not happening yet. Right? It's something that's not happening yet, because primarily the gospel has gone to the Jews, been within Israel, and is kept here in Jerusalem and Israel. Okay? But yet it's fixing to expand out past Jerusalem to Samaria and to the other parts of the world. It's not just for the Jew, but also to the Gentile, to the Jew and to the Greek. <laughs> and Jesus here is saying this is something that is imperative. I, this is something I have to do. Why is it something I have to do? Because of what we're fixing to see here. And they shall be they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. But they shall. They shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold. That is Jesus promising the fact that the Jew sheep and the Gentile sheep are all going to come. He already said that in John chapter 6. They shall all come. They are all going to come. And they're going to come. And they're not going to be a Jewish fold and a Gentile fold working against each other or even working in tandem with this separation between them where the Jews have a little bit more elevation because they're my chosen people, and the Gentiles are just the ones that we've grafted in to the chosen people. No, 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 no. The chosen one is Christ, and all of them are grafted into Him. The Gentiles are grafted in, but they're grafted into the root, which is Christ. And the Jew, which is in there, is in there only because they are in Christ. 
All of us are branches, but we're not the vine. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. There shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me. Here it goes back to this love again. Therefore doth my Father love me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. You don't think the suffering of Christ is central to everything? The love of God is displayed because Christ laid down His life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The love of God to the people of God is tied to the fact and displayed in the act of Christ dying. Is it nothing to you who pass by? The works and the sufferings of Christ and all of what they procured, all of what they efficaciously brought about. Verse 18, No man taketh from me, but I lay it down of myself. See, Jesus went willingly. He did this on his own. The Bible said, I believe it was in, um, was it Isaiah, maybe it was in Isaiah 50 or 53, that talks about that he had set his face like a flint. He says, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. And here it says, this commandment have I received of my Father. This commandment came from God. The mediator received the commandment that he would go and that he would procure everything that God had purposed in the redemption of a people. So if we want to talk about the plan of salvation, well, the plan of salvation included every detail of saving everyone for whom that plan was made for. And that Christ was the one who was to guarantee that because it was the command of God that none should be lost, that everyone would hear His voice, that everyone would come and follow Him, and that everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, make up the one fold that He went as the great shepherd, the good shepherd, He went and laid down His life for, He died for all of them so that they would come to Him. <clears throat> So whenever I go back to Lamentations and I see this man that's on the cross and I see that he is sitting there suffering these things for those people and the question is asked, you who pass by, is this nothing to you? You who preach, is this nothing to you? These things that you think that we who are preaching election and predestination uh, sovereignty of God, all these things. Is it nothing to you that Christ actually secured all the salvation of His people and because of that He actually became the Savior of His people? A Savior is one who saves. If He didn't save, if He died for somebody to save them, but yet does not save them, then He is not a Savior because He didn't save them. What He did didn't do anything to save them. They did something that caused that salvation to be enacted. They become their own saviors. You see why we're so adamant against free will, against free choice, decisionism, 
gospel regeneration. We're adamantly opposed to those things because it cuts at the very heart of the gospel, which is Christ is the successful Savior of His people. That it was the purpose of God, that it was the work of God, the act of God, the fulfillment and finished uh, uh, transaction between the Godhead and that all that what had happened actually caused a salvation for those for whom He died. And everything entailed in that salvation, whether it was the eternal legal aspect of it or whether it was the timely experiential aspect of it. You can't divide salvation into two times. Salvation. Eternal and experiential. Because everything that happened on the cross of Jesus Christ procured everything eternal and experiential. Without the work of Jesus Christ, nothing in the experience is going to happen. Without the work of Jesus Christ, nothing in the eternal is going to happen. It's the very center point. You can't preach the gospel without preaching the gospel according to the Scriptures. And the gospel according to the Scriptures isn't something that we just pass by and say, well, it's just... We're going to keep it simple. Christ died, buried, and if you just believe that, that's enough for the gospel to be saved. Well, for one, the gospel preaching doesn't save anybody. And what you're believing about that gospel doesn't actually save you. It just reveals whether or not you've been converted and are a believer or not. If you're not believing all the things of this gospel, as far as it pertains to imputed righteousness, sovereign grace, uh, predestination, election, and all those things, it just shows that God has not yet revealed those things to you if you are one of His. Because believing those things don't make you saved. <clears throat> but it is of utmost importance. It is a finished work. Jesus Christ Himself on the cross said it is finished. It, it, he didn't say to be concluded. We often watch TV programs and man, you get to watching those things, you know, we may be watching a cop show or a murder mystery or something like that and all of a sudden it gets to this intent point and you're wondering, well, who's finally going to show what's going to happen, what's going to happen? And all of a sudden then you see down at the bottom of your screen, to be continued. And you're like, oh man, got to wait another week. Well, now we don't have to wait another week. We've got streaming services. We just have to wait another few minutes, but... You, when growing up as a kid, a lot of these kids don't really understand. You had to wait another week for the program to come on. Now you just click to the next episode. But it said to be continued. Well, that's how a lot of people are preaching the gospel. Jesus did it all, did it all, did it all here, did it all here, and then all of a sudden, boom, he goes back to heaven to be continued. Something that you have to do. Now he finished it. It is finished. He did everything. And there is a result for everything that he did. Therefore, we shouldn't walk by, pass by. Matter of fact, we should stop and gaze. We should stop and take it in. We should stop and rejoice. Let our heart be sorrowful for the very fact that we want to keep on walking. We should look and gaze and glorify and, and rejoice in what? The sufferings of our Lord and Savior. We rejoice in the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we know that that is the very center point of all things. The center point of all preaching. The center point of all experience. The center point of all salvation. The center point of all of creation. The center point of all eternity is going to be on the crucified Lamb 
who is redeemed. Remember, Revelation 5. Remember? Just a quick remembrance before we close. We, re we just read it. Revelation 5. What was, what, was, what was being sung? What was being worshipped? What was being proclaimed there at, at, at the throne? Thou art worthy, for Thou wast slain and hath redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. That's what we were rejoicing. We didn't say, you know, that Thou art worthy, for Thou hast made us well. Thou art worthy because You made me rich. Thou art worthy because You give me all this, that, and the other. Thou art worthy because You give me a great ministry, a big church, lots of followers. That my YouTube channel had 9,000 hits this month. You know, now, I'm not saying we're all prone to looking at that stuff. I ain't saying that. I don't look at the analytics on that to see where we're at and how many people are watching and that sort of stuff. Curiosity. It's all of us, right? The flesh wants to see. <clears throat> I pray that I don't revel in that, but most of the time when I look at it, I'm amazed that people are even listening. Uh, but it's not about that. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain the whole worship around the throne of God is over the work of the one who most everybody else just passed by and it's nothing to them. But to us, it is our life. It is who we are. That is why we make such a big deal about it. That's why we seclude ourselves from other people and other worship places that are worshiping another Jesus with another gospel. That's why we don't hold hands with everybody. We're not ecumenical. That's why we're sectarian. That's why we are so distinctive in who we fellowship with and who we don't fellowship with, who we have come preaching our services and who we don't, and who we won't go be a part of, and things like that. Why? Because we know that those messages are contradictory messages and those Jesuses are totally different Jesus. One is a Jesus who successfully did all the saving. The other one is one who just tries to make it possible. And yet, at the end of everything, he has lost people that he died for. See, that's why it's so detrimental to us. That's why it's so important to us. Because we don't just pass by, and it's nothing to us. It's everything to us. Alright, does anybody have any questions or any comments or any corrections or another aspect or view that you'd like to... Alright. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You again for the day and we thank You for Your mercy and grace. We thank You for the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank You for all that He has done for us. Not just the death, burial, and resurrection. Why? All that is so important. <clears throat> we, thank you, we thank You for, the, for Your life that You lived on our behalf. We thank You for Your intercession for us even now. Everything about who You are, Father, we are so thankful and we know that because of it, we live, we move, we have our being. But more than that, we are eternally given life. It isn't just life in this world, but we are given life eternal. We are given to be able to experience communion with you. We are able to be with you forever and ever. That we are 
given a righteousness that we never, ever could have procured for ourselves. And so, Father, we are truly thankful for that. I'm thankful for these brothers and sisters that are here today. I pray, Lord, that they've been encouraged, they've been edified, those listening. I pray for that, Lord. I pray that the things that I've spoken have been of, of the truth and that they've not been of my own invention, that they've truly been of truth and that there's been an exaltation of Jesus Christ and not the preacher, not the church, not the whatever. I just pray, Lord, that, that, that truly Christ has been exalted in everything today. We ask, Lord, that you might keep us faithful to these things. Our flesh does want to walk by and pass by as if it was nothing. But yet the inward man <clears throat> is completely drawn to what Christ has done on our behalf. We live off that. That is our bread. Jesus said that, that his flesh is the bread that came down from heaven and that he give that flesh for our benefit, that that is our food, that if you eat of my flesh and you drink of my blood, then you have communion with me. And we know that that's not to be a literal thing, that that is speaking symbolically of the work of Jesus Christ in giving his body for us and shedding his blood on our behalf, that we partake of that and that becomes our spiritual livelihood and for, uh, uh, sustenance as we look at those things and that causes us to rejoice and it encourages us and builds us up in the holy faith. So we thank you for all that you've done for us. Pray that you give safety to everyone as they go home this week, as wherever you have them and what you have them involved in. Lord, we pray that you just might uh, uh, give unto them uh, uh, the blessing that you would give them uh, that you would help them, that you give them words to speak as they minister to others. Uh, Lord, that you would uh, just uh, uh, let them experience Christ in their morning and evening or daily or however, whenever it is that they go into your word and they study, Lord, may that be uh, a rejoicing in their heart and in their soul as they look into your word. Again, we thank you so much, and we ask you to bless this time, bless this uh, day, and it's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen.